recently, uh, Lindsay and I have gotten into watching this uh, new series on Net- Netflix um, called uh, My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. Um, it's a interview series that David Letterman is doing now. And he's kind of set aside the, the, the comedy stuff. And these are a really in-depth, good interviews. Um, it's surprising that you kind of think of him as being this jokester. But these interviews touch on some really deep things in people's uh, lives. And he kind of interviews people across the, the spectrum, politics, uh, international things that are going on, comedians, uh, actors. And one we watched recently, uh, he was interviewing George Clooney. And part of the interview got to a place where they were discussing um, a lot of the work that George Clooney has gotten involved in of doing a lot of philanthropy work, um, pursuing uh, uh, local and international justice and mercy kind of stuff. And um, the, the interview, the, the question and, and interaction went like this. Letterman uh, says to Clooney, the reason I like helping people is selfish because it makes me feel good. Is that okay? And Clooney says, I think it's probably why most people do it. I think you do it for that or you're absolving yourself from some guilt. I mean, I grew up in, I was raised Catholic and I remember how a saint put a pebble in her shoe and would walk around for penance. And in a small town, the priest knows everybody and he'd recognize your voice. And by fifth grade, you really don't want to confess all your sins. You got some private ones that you might not really want him to know. So I would only confess what I deemed was important for him to know. And then I'd fill my shoes with gravel. And I'd jump off the top bunk of my bunk bed to cleanse myself of the rest of my sins. And then he goes on and and, uh, as they interact, it comes out that a lot of his philanthropy and justice work he sees as just a vision, uh, another version of him walking around with pebbles in his in his shoes. And Letterman goes, well, how long did that uh, did that rocks in your shoe thing go on? And Clooney joking goes, well, it stopped a week ago. And Letterman goes, wow, that's some powerful guilt. Um, it goes on to say if Clooney had ended up just working at a Dairy Queen for the rest of his life and not become a famous movie star, would he have still done the same things? And he goes, well, maybe, but uh, I feel like since I've gotten so much, I've uh, gotten so lucky, I guess I have this Roman Catholic, Irish Catholic guilt in me and I got I to gotta try to pass it along with this looming uh, wondering if his, his sins are going to come back to, to getting. Why, why do we seek to do good to others? Why do we seek to pursue, or should we seek to pursue, issues of, of mercy and justice? Is it, is it because the way God works and operates in the world, and we relate to Him, is that because we've been so bad... And messed up so much that um, we our only hope is that we got to work off the, the wrong we've done by balancing it out and hopefully outweighing it with good. And if you can't do enough good, maybe you could just stick some rocks in your shoes because at least you're hurting and that'll satisfy and deal with your sin and bring you into a right relationship to God. 
And these are important questions for us to, to understand. Remember, we've been working our way through the book of Leviticus. Um, and remember, what we saw is that God has redeemed His people Israel from enslavement in Egypt and enslavement to these false gods in Egypt. He saved them to a relationship with Him that He's promised He's going to dwell in their midst. And He saved them for participation in His mission to demonstrate His glory and His goodness around the world. And so we're, we, the first several chapters had to do with uh, a lot of sacrifice and how if a sinful people is living in the midst of a holy God, then what are we going to do with our sin? God doesn't say put rocks in your shoes. God doesn't say do good stuff and if you're good enough, I'll stick around. Now, God says, I've provided a way for your sin to be dealt with so that I can dwell in your midst. But then it transitions on and we're seeing over the past uh, couple of weeks where we've been in Leviticus 19 that some people call the holiness code where God is is outlined what it looks like if he as a holy God has called us to be his holy people. What does it look like to live it out? And what we'll see as we get in specifically this week, as we look at these uh, several uh, different rules and laws that have to do with caring and reaching out to the vulnerable, to the hurting, to those who are experiencing injustice, um, what the motivation should be, why we do it, why God would call us to do. Uh, has, is it the way and the methods and the motivation that George Clooney is advocating and understanding of how one relates to God? Or is it something different? Is there gospel and grace in the law in Leviticus? Um, so, if you would, turn with me to chapter 19 of Leviticus. If you want to follow along in one of the black Bibles there in front of you, you'll find this on page 97. Um, uh, last week we looked at uh, a few of the laws that had to do more with the relationships between children and parents. This week we're looking at uh, um, more of uh, God's uh, care and concern for uh, the vulnerable in our society and community. Next week we'll be looking at some that have more to do with, uh, with business uh, kind of aspects and uh, economic things. And then we'll wrap it up by looking at some of these summary statements that have to do with loving our neighbor as ourselves, which is uh, one of the uh, um, a pretty significant verse that comes up a lot in the New Testament that comes from this passage. Uh, so I'm not going to read all of um, Leviticus 19 this morning. I'm just going to uh, skip through and read the, the verses that will pertain to our, uh, our looking into these laws this morning. Um, so if you would... Follow along with me as we hear from the Word of God from Leviticus chapter 19, starting in verses 1 and 2. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Skip down to verses 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. 
and down to verses 14 and 15. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall, uh, shall you judge your neighbor. And down to verses 20 through 22. Uh, if a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man, and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death, because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to Yahweh, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before Yahweh for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. Verses 32 through 34. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you shall, uh, and you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. And closing out with verse 37. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am Yahweh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your your Word. We thank You that You've given us uh, Your very Word to communicate and show us how we love and obey You. Um, we pray this morning that You would, uh, Holy Spirit, apply these, these words of Yours to our hearts. Uh, change us. Um, give us a greater picture of the heart and love of our God um, and what it is that You've called us to. Um, in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, it's interesting to see here in uh, this passage that where God starts with our motivation for living a holy or a godly or a compassionate life in this world doesn't begin with us doing something uh, to uh, the reason is so that we can merit some sort of relationship with God. It's not so that we can deal with our own sin. But it starts in and is based in the relationship we already have with our God. Notice where it begins. You shall be holy for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. Where it starts is that Israel, the people of God, already have a relationship with him. He's already redeemed them. He's called them to be his people. And with him being a holy God, they're not just, as we talked about this before, they're not just saved from something they're saved to a relationship with God and they're saved for something to demonstrate and show his character in the watching world. So as a holy God and being the people of a holy God, they should live holy lives as a demonstration and a reflection of who God is and who they are as his people. So that means that the laws that we're reading through and that we're looking at in this section of Leviticus and in fact, the whole book um, is... Uh, these laws give us insight into the values of the lawgiver. The heart of the God that gives us these laws uh, is in the, the laws, showing us as he gives us particular regulations to guide us in, in the things that he considers valuable. 
um, or he considers uh, important to address. And so we're learning a lot about God's heart from the laws that he gives us. We're learning a lot about what he cares about and what that should begin for us to think about because we are now, through the work of Jesus, if we're hoping and trusting in him, we've been saved into the people of God. That means this story of Israel is our story. The calling of Israel is our calling. God is our God. We're his people. Do we care about the things God cares about? Do our lives demonstrate and show uh, physical evidence of the heart of God in the world? What is it that God cares about? Here, a lot in this passage, we see that God has a deep, deep heart and concern for the vulnerable. Look at how we see that. We're going to look at several different groups of, uh, of people that seem to, to come out in this passage. There obviously could be some overlap. Um, but let's, let's look at it. First, it, it comes out in this passage through these rules that God really has a heart and He cares about those who are materially poor. Look in verse 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after harvest. And you shall not strip the vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh, your God. So notice as he ends the statement with, I am Yahweh, your God. Why are you doing this? Because I'm your God. You're my people. This is reflecting something about me. Here, God has concern for the materially poor. What he's talking about is uh, when you go through, remember they would, uh, uh, once they they get settled in the land, right now they're, they're still wandering, but once they settle in the land and they start planting fields, remember whose land it is, it's God's land. So as they're planting and harvesting in God's land, God's saying, look, Don't go through and harvest all the way up to the edge. As you're going through and you're harvesting and you happen to drop some stuff or some of it falls in the the process of harvesting, don't go back through and just take it all up thinking that all of this is mine and nobody else is going to get it. Oh, you better make sure you get all those grapes off the vine because we do not want anybody else to have any of this stuff It's mine. I planted it. I harvested it. I cared for it. And I'm either going to use it or I'm going to sell it and make money for it. God says, no, no, don't go all the way up to the edge with it. You're to leave some of that stuff. You're to leave it for the poor and the the sojourner in the land. These would have been people who, who probably didn't have land themselves. They didn't have the means by which to provide for their own, uh, sustenance to to eat. Um, Remember, this would have been more of a a bartering uh, agrarian economy. And so it's not like um, uh, there were uh, uh, other different jobs. If you didn't have land, you were really uh, in a destitute situation and you were struggling. And God says, look, I care about these people. I care about the poor in our communities, in our people, the, the sojourners, the visitors who are coming from other places who move into the, to Israel and don't have land, can't uh, uh, grow crops themselves. 
I want you to have a heart and a mind towards them. I want you to view the, everything that I've given you, the land I've given you, the seeds I've given you, the rain that I've given you to make these grapes or this wheat or this barley grow, that it's all for me. I've given it and cared for and provided for you. And I need you to think about the broader community that you also should have a heart of compassion and a desire to, to help and care for those who are struggling and suffering materially in your midst. God cares for the poor. But notice, we're not to take this to an extreme. Notice what it says in verse 15. You shall not do injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Sometimes we can get in this mentality that it's good to stick it to the man. People who have a lot, the reason they have a lot is because they've probably taken advantage of somebody along the way. And so one way we can get what's ours and make them pay for what they've done is by taking from them, whether it's in the court uh, in courts or by swiping some uh, some towels from that big luxury hotel that you've been visiting or uh, or piling up a little just ordering water and, and filling up your Coke cup to the to the brim because McDonald's already has they're making enough. They can uh, they can deserve to, to lose a little bit on uh, on me. Um, uh, God's saying no. It's not that his view of is rich is bad and poor is good because God is also saying here there people who are poor are sinners just as much as people who are rich. And in the midst of it, when we're looking at people, we're not going to be partial just because you're poor or partial just because you're rich. God's concerned with justice going all around for everybody, regardless of socioeconomic class. But God's saying there is a place, though, in my world and in my community and in the context of my people that it should there should be a demonstration of your compassion and care for those who are struggling uh, materially. What what does that look like for us? I mean, we're. I mean, maybe a few of you have gardens here, some people it might be. I mean, I know my garden growing up, if I didn't harvest to the edge, there wasn't nothing. There was one row. How do you not harvest to the edge there? Or if you're, uh, you know, if you're growing crops about in your backyard or your fields, you have more. This is a, how does this apply to us? We're not agrarian people. But if we understand that these laws are communicating to us the heart of God, then there's principles that we can gather from this that should inform our actions, not just our actions, but our hearts. Do we view our stuff as all ours? Every bit of money that I earn, every bit of stuff that I have, I'm only going to use on me and I'm going to spend everything to the limit. I'm going to save and keep it away. Nobody else gets anything or I'm going to spend so much that I'm even going to actually spend to the limit. I'm not only not going to just harvest up to the edge of my crop line, I'm going to go over to the next guys, too. Uh, and we find ourselves 
maybe the, the way that we spend and our approach and our thoughts to our stuff prevent us and limit us when we're thinking all about ourselves. We have no capacity in our heart or our mind to even contemplate thinking about other people. Maybe we've our budgets are such that we've spent so much on us that if somebody who was poor or struggling came into our lives or in our congregation, we don't have the budget capacity to do it. Because all we've been thinking about the whole time is how I can spend my stuff on me instead of viewing what we see communicated to us here in the scriptures that God has given us everything to be a blessing and the stuff that we've given he's given us is an opportunity for us to use it to reflect his care and concern in the world around us. What it would it look like for us to think differently about our stuff? the money that we're earning, the things that we have to be in a, in a place and an opportunity to be able to help those who don't have as much. Sometimes what might limit us applying this is, is a sense of, of pride. Sometimes uh, if um, uh, there's uh, an organization who has done a lot of research in this, the Chalmers Center that's connected with our denomination, and in uh, one of their books, uh, which I would highly recommend, it's called When Helping Hurts, um, How to Help the Materially Poor Without Hurting Them or Ourselves. One of the things that they talk about in there is uh, worldwide, when uh, people who are materially poor are, are interviewed and asked um, what, what it means to be poor, a lot of what it comes down to is loss of dignity. They don't talk about it in terms of not having money and stuff, although if you don't have food, you can't eat. But it's dignity because a lot of times they're treated and they're regarded as being less than human. Um, they're, they're looked down upon um, uh, and uh, people treat them harshly. Uh, sometimes that can happen with us. Maybe we're like, well, I, haven't, I don't know that I've really treated a, a poor person hard, harshly. Um, but... Sometimes do we, if we see someone who appears to be asking for, for money or struggling or, or communicates that they're in a bad case financially, sometimes what can happen in our own hearts is go to a place of pride, of how well we've handled our finances, of uh, how much maybe better we are, or begin to think and assume that the reason they're in the situation they are is because of foolishness and error and sin on their part. And that might not be the case. Sin is greater than just the individual and could actually, there could be things that are happening in, uh, in um, our, our communities with employers or just system things that have happened over the course of time that people get stuck in these, these places. Um, but if we're in a place of, instead of engaging and, and entering into a, a person's life, finding out what's going on, finding out how we can be of help and assistance, uh, then we are not going to be able to demonstrate the heart of God to people around us. Uh, maybe in other instances, maybe you're, uh, something that may limit us in doing this is maybe you've been taken advantage of before. Maybe you've tried to help someone who is uh, materially poor and you feel like you were uh, mistreated. Um, uh, that is always a risk. Anytime we enter a relationship with other people that we could be taken uh, advantage of. Um, 
Uh, and there's uh, a place for us to, to think through wisdom and how we're doing things and maybe uh, some of the concepts in, in this book and some discussions that we can have at another time may help us think through that. But notice here, uh, it doesn't put a whole lot of stipulations on this. There is a sense in which God is wanting to get deep into our hearts and thinking about how are you and where is your heart as you look at caring for those who are struggling and suffering materially. Um, and this is uh, uh, something that we need to think about uh, because if we think about how our God responded to us, we need to realize that, you know what, we were, we were poor. We were indebted and enslaved to our sin. We, we had nothing in which we could offer to our God to redeem us from the debt we had found ourselves in. Lost in, in our, our spiritual poverty before Him. But what did our God, who had all things, do? In His grace and His mercy, He entered into our world. God, who had everything, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, dwelt in ultimate power over all things. And yet He entered into our world. And what did we see a couple of weeks ago as we looked at the requirements for the sacrifices? A poor person offered two doves when, one was, when a child was born. That's what Jesus had to offer. He enters into poverty. What? To redeem and save us. So that in the riches of His righteousness... He applies and credits that to our account as He takes our sin and our debt on Himself, delivering us so that now, instead of being rebels and exiles, lost in our, in our, uh, our spiritual poverty before Him, we're now made rich and blessed as His sons and His daughters. What that means is that if we understand our own poverty and how God has provided for us, then that should open up Areas of connection with anybody that we encounter, whether it's material poverty, it's spiritual poverty, it's poverty of a relationship, poverty of their understanding of how the, the, the creation and their, their place fits in here. All of this is God calling us to not just carry out these laws to the jot and the tittle, but for our hearts to be engaged too. God has a heart and as a, a, a compassionate God that cares about the materially poor. But there's other places here. Um, God also, we see in these laws, God has a, a, a heart and compassion for those who are physically and mentally disabled. Um, when, uh, when I was growing up, I had a, a, a second cousin, I think, I don't know how to figure all those. I don't know what once removed and twice removed and all that means. I'll just call him my second cousin. His name was Skeet. Um, and uh, Skeet had severe uh, mental and physical disabilities. And his family moved to Charlotte uh, from my mom's hometown. And they were looking to get involved in churches in the area. And they got involved in a, in a church not far from them, and they wanted to get Skeet involved as much as possible in the youth stuff and the things that were going on there. Um, uh, but in those programs, 
uh, Skeet was picked on and bullied for the way that he he spoke, the sounds that he made, the movements that that came from his body that he had no control over. And uh, once his dad found out about that, they never again attended church for the rest of their lives. The way that the people of God interacted with someone who is physically and mentally disabled reflected to Skeet's dad, this must be what this God is like. If this is how his people are acting and therefore I don't want to have anything to do with them and they never set foot in church again. Is that true? Is that how our God, is that his heart? Look at what we see in verse 14. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. God says, this is not my design and my intention. People have been affected in various ways due to the fall that have affected how they hear, how they see, how they think, how their bodies work. And you will do nothing to hinder or abuse or to, to put them in a place of neglect. Notice here in, in this instance how, how God follows it up with, you're not to curse the deaf who can't hear you. They may never know what you said, whatever you say behind their back. Or the blind person that you lay something in their path. They may never know what you did as they fall on the ground and never have a clue who did it. And they may never be able to come back and, and do anything about it. But you know who knows? God. And you better fear Him. Because He cares about them. And He will, he will work out justice at some point. If not now, when Jesus returns, because he is the covenant making and keeping God and you will not in my community act like this towards people who are physically and mentally disabled. You will fear me. Why? Because I am your God. You are my people and you are going to live out a life that reflects who I am because of the compassion and mercy that I've shown you. But physical and mentally Mental disabilities, some can, can come genetically as we're, as we're born and enter in this world, but some of it happens much later in life. Some of it can, can come on in an old age. This Friday, or yeah, Thursday, down at the waterfront um, was Elder Abuse Awareness Day. International Elder Abuse Awareness uh, they had lots of people gathered with booths set up down at the waterfront to bring awareness to abuse that happens uh, around the world uh, to uh, people who are elderly and under the care of others. Um, I did not know that this was so prevalent. Um, uh, some of the, the things that they... the the stat, stats that they give that people with dementia or Alzheimer's that that they're they're struggling with that that disease that three international studies worldwide found that uh, people with dementia are abused by their caregivers anywhere between 34 and 62 percent of 
of elderly people with dementia or Alzheimer's struggle with abuse in that uh, in that way. Um, another uh, report that they had and communicated up there is that 30 percent of all adults with disabilities uh, and this would include adults as well as the elderly with disabilities experience some sort of abuse or neglect uh, or manipulation in their uh, in their lives. The police around here send out uh, updates all the time saying there's a scam going on. They're preying on the elderly, calling them on the phone or visiting and knocking on their doors and taking advantage of people. Please make sure that word gets out to not fall for any of these. But notice what God says. In verse 32, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And again, you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. You see, as we look at these verses and these laws, we have to remember that God's calling us to do something is just like him calling is, is just as important as him saying not to. So when he says honor the elderly among you, God's also saying in that you shall not abuse or manipulate them. When the call is there to not, not, don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, the other extreme comes too, that you're to show them compassion and pursue justice and, and sound care for them. God has a heart for those who are struggling. And elderly people, as they get into a place of uh, of dementia, or if their bodies begin to break down and they're in nursing homes or caregivers are coming in, a lot of times they can be a prime target for suffering. Because the thought is, they're not going to know. They're not going to tell anybody. But what do we learn about the character of our God? He knows. And He cares. And therefore, because He knows and He cares, what should be true of His people is that we care. Because think about Think about this. When you were redeemed and saved by your God, were you and I not blind? Blind to our sin? Blind to His glory in the world? Were we not deaf? Could we not hear the good, sweet news of the Gospel and the beauty of Jesus? Were we not actually dead unable to respond to him. But in his mercy and his compassion, he came to the spiritually deaf and the spiritually blind and gave us eyes to see and ears to hear that we would embrace him. How then, having experienced that and knowing what it's like to be blind and deaf, to suffer spiritually, could we then turn and respond to other people and harm them in that way? God's saying no. No. What should be characteristic of my people and what we should be known as is a place where the physically and mentally disabled uh, find acceptance and love, support, encouragement. They should never be viewed as an inconvenience in our churches or in our homes or in our lives. Their noise shouldn't disrupt or disturb us as thinking that they're, they're annoying or interrupting our worship service. 
But seeing this as being a place, your home as being a place where we should be able and see the privilege of being able to demonstrate the compassionate character of our God who loves and cares for the vulnerable, for the physically and mentally disabled because of what He's done for us. So, but it, it goes on. It's not just the, the materially poor or the physically and mentally disabled. We also see another place where God has concern and compassion for the vulnerable. And this group of laws, it highlights God's concern for the powerless. Look in verses 20 and 22. Um, it If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, now don't think slavery like American South. Think a a better term would probably be servant. Someone who's found themselves in some sort of financial difficulty or um, they've, uh, they've hired themselves out to be under the care of this person, and so they're, they're working as a means for their, their own provision. Um, and so they're, they're, they weren't bought or purchased. They have a lot of rights within, uh, within uh, Israel. And we'll touch on this in a couple of more chapters where there's a lot that goes on with, uh, with uh, servants or slavery, if you want to call it that. But if a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man, and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death, because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to Yahweh to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him and the ram of the guilt offering before Yahweh for his sin that he's committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he's committed. Uh, so the picture here is a, a, a woman who is uh, in uh, servitude to uh, some sort of uh, um, land owner in Israel. He's verbally promised her and arranged for her to be married with somebody else in the community. Um, but prior to that other person uh, paying the, uh, uh, the betrothal place to kind of move them into a more um, uh, intense agreement, um, uh, because once you were betrothed, if you uh, had sex with someone outside of that, it would have been viewed as adultery. The penalty would have been death for both people involved. Um, uh, but so she hasn't actually been betrothed yet. So the, the implication would be um, uh, that uh, that wouldn't have probably wouldn't have fallen under the, the case for the, the penalty of, uh, of death. Um, but God says here, look, um, you are to make a distinction. Look here um, at this woman. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But the guy who who slept with her, he's going to need to pay compensation. He's going to need to come before the Lord and atone for the sin that he's committed. Notice that doesn't address her. Because think about in the context. The person with the, the, the power comes before the, the woman who is in this place of powerlessness, who's completely dependent, and he makes advances on her. And what could be the case is that she would see herself as being in a position to where she cannot refuse. And so the one with the, the obligation here, the one with the guilt, is the man who is exercising his power and his influence over her to bring her into place to where now this sin has been committed. 
And God is saying, look, it might not fit within the, the law of if this scenario happens of, uh, of adultery. But look here. Sin has been committed and this man will have to bring uh, account before me and atone with the proper sacrifices because she was not free. Now, at minimum, what we would see here is that God has a concern and a care, not just for the, the those with power and influence within Israel, but even those of the, the lowest socioeconomic and influence power kind of group. This servant woman who may have felt intimidated or pressured by this man who's coming and feeling like I cannot refuse because he's the one who has power over me. God is saying, no, I can still consider this sin. You are not going to interact with people like this. You are to use your power to further the flourishing of other people, to seek that they are, their lives are bettered, not for you to take advantage of them. God cares about that stuff. And he's pointing out and calling what sin is sin. How does this play out for us? Think about ways, the, the interactions within our culture where one with power or authority or influence has interaction or particular influence over, over someone else. Parent-child, teacher-student, boss and worker, policeman and citizen. Officer within the military and enlisted. Pastor and church member. Politician and a citizen over which they have been entrusted care. Think about the ways that each of those dynamics, someone's been entrusted with authority and the, the potential there is there for that to be misused to take advantage of someone who is under their authority who does not have power how they could be abused and mistreated. God is saying, look, this is not to be. Look at my character. You're to reflect me in the world as my people. What have I done for you? I've used my power. I've used my power to enter in to your world, to deliver and save you. Jesus didn't consider it all to be held back, but the creator of all things took on flesh and he became a baby who had to have his diapers changed. The one who made birds to sing and tides to come and weather systems to move. Stooped to a point to where in order to redeem and save you, he had to be in a place of powerlessness to depend on someone else to even change his diapers. What kind of God is this? And if he has done that for us to go to the point to where even he would submit himself to an unjust death to redeem and save us from our sin, should we not want to live in a way in this world that any kind of power or influence that we have, we want to use it for the care of others, to look out for those who could potentially be hurt or abused or taken advantage of. These are things that we need to consider and think about it may be that you get involved with a, an international group. Uh, there's one group that's called International Justice Mission that seeks to internationally and even locally look at these places where injustice kind of things like this can happen and how to be involved. Some of it may be that you uh, become a, a place of advocacy in the court system, um, doing something similar to what Lannan's doing. Or even this, 
speaking up. When you see something going on in a restaurant or in a home or in your workplace, saying something about it, reporting it. Why? Because God cares. We're His people. We've been redeemed by Him and have the privilege of reflecting His character in the world. We should want to do this. It's not rocks in our shoes. It's showing the character of our God. So the materially poor, the, uh, the mental and physically disabled, the powerless. And the last place we want to touch on in this as we look at the vulnerable is seeing the emphasis God has here for the stranger, the alien, the immigrant or refugee, what terminology you want to, want to pull on, put on it. Look in verse 33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. So remember, the purpose for why God redeemed and saved Israel, why He's given them the land, it's in this crossroads of the Middle East back then. As trade routes are coming through this area, people from all over the world are coming through Israel. And the design would be that as they see the people of God living in fellowship with Him and in communion with one another with these good laws, that they would want to not leave. I want to stay here. I want to be a part of this God and be with His people. That would mean they have no land. They have no way of, 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 uh, of providing for themselves initially. They might not know the language. There's a potential for them to be taken advantage of. God says, no, you're not going to take advantage of these people who are coming into your land. Why? Because the purpose of what I redeemed you to demonstrate and reflect my goodness to them. You should see this as an opportunity to care for them. In fact, you're not going to have a different rule of law for the native of Israel as the sojourner and mistreat them through that. You're to care for them and show them love and compassion. In fact, he goes so far as to saying, you're to love them as yourself. Why? Because you were a stranger. You were a stranger in Egypt. And God entered in and redeemed and saved you. In fact, you should understand and remember, Israel, you're a sojourner. You are dwelling in land that is not yours. It's mine. And I've given it to you and I want you to use it for the purposes I've given it to you. God has a heart for those who are strangers and sojourners. So think about that for us. What does it look like for us as, as God's people? Because we're not dwelling in Israel anymore. God's purpose is not with just that little speck of geography in the Middle East, but now it's all of the world. And so he's called all of his worldwide community to reflect these values. What does it look like for us now in America, here at Harbor, to have a care and concern for the sojourner, for the stranger, for the immigrant? There was a, a, there's a church in Richmond, one of our, uh, uh, it's in our denomination, um, it's called West End Presbyterian Church. And uh, they found out that the city of Richmond had designated 
the apartment complexes that were behind their church as a refugee resettlement uh, community. So the uh, people who are fleeing uh, war, uh, political unrest, persecution, anything, as they were admitted into the U.S., this was going to be a refugee settlement point. Um, uh, West End has embraced that calling to care for these people who, have, who, are, who are fleeing and transitioning into our country as a means of, of, of reaching out to them with English classes, of helping them navigate our financial situations, bank, going to the grocery store, how to live life here, inviting them into their homes, exhibiting and demonstrating hospitality. They didn't see it as a, as a, uh, a means of a way to, um, to keep uh, people away or out of their community there in their church, but embracing it because of the calling that they see here in the, in the Scriptures. What, is it, what does it look like for us here in Elizabeth City? Um, for uh, people who maybe are transitioning here from other countries, who have moved in here, maybe it's not due to political unrest. Maybe it's not due because they're fleeing persecution. Maybe they've just moved here, are unfamiliar with the language. How often do you hear people in our culture comment despairingly on people from other other countries and nations who don't know the language as well, who don't know our culture as well, and may treat them poorly because they're not from here? God says, no. You don't love them as you love yourself. Showing them generous hospitality and care because God has delivered and saved you. It could come across as, as partnering uh, here in Elizabeth City to do some ESL classes to help teach people the language, to integrate them in, more into our, uh, our culture and into our community, seeing it as a privilege and an opportunity to learn more about who God is as people bring other perspectives from other places. We have a, uh, our denomination has a ministry I forgot to mention this earlier. We have one that's more focused for equipping churches and individuals on engaging people with disabilities within uh, your church and your area. They have another one that's focused on uh, addressing uh, refugees and immigrants who are finding their way into the, the U.S. What does it look like to care for them? And then also think through and seeing the opportunity to see them take the gospel to those that they know back where they came from. Um, or to think if maybe what it would look like is, is not just thinking about once people get here to the U.S., but what it look like to support missionaries who are on the front lines in places where these refugee resettlement camps are happening in other places. To be able to, to, to send missionaries and people there who are engaging with people who are hurting and fleeing uh, injustice and oppression to demonstrate the love of the God who redeems and saves sojourners and strangers and delivers them to give them the good news of the gospel. For others of us, maybe it doesn't happen a lot. But you know what? People move into Elizabeth City all the time from other places. And for a lot of people, a small town in the South is a foreign place. What does it look like to engage your neighbors who are new to the area of being a church and a household that welcomes new people, pursues and seeks to engage them with the love of Jesus. Why? 
because of what God's done for us. The New Testament doesn't just refer to Israel and the Old Testament as being the sojourners and the strangers. Peter talks about all of God's people being sojourners and strangers. Why? We're awaiting God's renewal of all things. We're here, strangers in this world, as we await Jesus' return to restore and renew all things. This can be a little overwhelming. All right, now how am I going to do this? The poor, the vulnerable, physical and mentally disabled, refugees, strangers. We can't do everything. But what we can begin to do is as we reflect on the gospel and embrace the calling we have, which part of the good news of the gospel is our participation in God's mission because of what Jesus has done for us, we can begin to think through what does it look like for me to practice God's compassion in the lives of those that he's already brought into my midst. The neighbors, the co-workers, the people in our community that are already here and that we're interacting with. And looking at my own heart, why am I resistant to doing this? And in some ways, though, we might also need to think about this. We might begin to think, you know what? I don't know that I have that many interactions or relationships with people that fit in these categories. Because you know what? It's really easy to hang out and build relationships and friendships with people just like us. But you know what? Each of these categories that we look at in this, in this passage are talking about people who are very different from the rest of the Israelite community. And God is saying, you need to have a special heart and compassion for them. What does it look like for us to think through and to begin to, to look at expanding the kinds of relationships we have, to cross over some of these lines, socioeconomically, ethnic and, uh, and culturally, physical and age kind of categories? Because remembering this, that distance is very small compared to the distance of the Creator who created all things, establishing and pursuing and redeeming a relationship with rebellious creatures. And He brings us into His family as His sons and daughters. If He can do that, can we not do these other things? And are we not freed up to do this so that we show that this is the kind of God we serve? This is the kind of God that saved us. This is the God who calls himself my father and says that we are his children. It's a picture of his grace and mercy. And what this chapter of Leviticus is calling us to do is to realize the grace that God has given us and to live lives that show it out to the world around us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your law, how good it is. Uh, we thank you for the mercy that you've shown us as your people and pray that we would embrace more and more the calling you've given us to demonstrate your character in the world. Uh, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.